This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome to another episode of literary treks your official star trek books and comics podcast here on the trek fm network this is episode number 247 and i am just one of your hosts of this fine show my name is bruce gibson and with me from across the computer screen that i'm looking at right now is the great host Dan Gunther. How you doing, Dan? Hey, Bruce. Doing great. Happy to be here, as usual. Good, because we're going to talk about Star Trek books and comics. Oh, my God. That's exciting. We never do that. Wait, we oh always gosh. do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. We always do that. Well, we talk about other stuff. You guys just don't hear it because we do it before the show. If you only knew what we were talking about, <laughs> that's when people were like, what? What was it? Believe me, it wasn't that interesting. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, on today's feature, we're going to review the book, Star Trek The Next Generation, A Time to Kill by David Mack. Yes, we're continuing through the Time to Kill series, and this is the seventh book in that series. So we're nearing the end. We're getting closer because there's nine books. Quite interesting. So stick around for that. But in the meantime, let's go to the news items. So the first news item we have is we found out what our one, two, three, fourth book is in 2019 to be published. And it's called The Captain's Oath by Christopher L. Bennett coming out in May of 2019. And Dan, it looks like you ran into this one on the Simon Schuster website. I did. Yeah, actually, I do have to credit uh, a user of the Trek BBS. I can't remember who posted it now, but they posted the link and discovered that this new book would be coming in late May 2019 by Christopher L. Bennett, and it's called The Captain's Oath, and it's an original series novel. So uh, another original series novel by Christopher Bennett, that's I think his second of the the full-length full TOS novels. So uh, excited for this one. It looks, uh, we don't really know anything about it other than the title and the author, but Excited that we're getting more news trickling out about the 2019 publication schedule. Yeah, there's no summary. There's no cover. 
the Simon Schuster website just says cover to be revealed. What I do notice is it does confirm that the format is a trade paperback and it is listed in the U.S. at $16, but it's also available. Yeah, there, like you said, late May, May 28th is the release date and uh, pre-order is available online. So go ahead and pre-order now. So Christopher L. Bennett can say, yay, I'm already getting orders. Mm-hmm, absolutely. The one thing with regards to the title, some people thought that it might have to do with the space, the final frontier thing that Kirk says, because at the end of Star Trek Into Darkness, they call that the captain's oath, which I've always thought was weird because it's not an oath at all. <laughs> it's more like a mission statement or something like that. But somebody brought that up on the Trek BBS and Christopher L. Bennett said, no, it has nothing to do with that. So don't know what this could be about. Sounds interesting, though. Well, I know when he writes in the TOS time frame, he likes to write in that period shortly after the motion picture. Did he confirm that on Trek BBS? Nothing. Basically, he was asked anything about it, and he said he's not sure what he's allowed to say yet. So he pretty much kept quiet, except for that one denial about the Into Darkness tie-in. <laughs> he should have said, well, I can tell you Kirk is in the book. Hmm. I wonder if he's even allowed to reveal that. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm going to bet you it's shortly after the motion picture, that time frame before the Wrath of Khan, but closer to the motion picture time frame. Mm, I hope so. I do like those stories set during that time. So it could be interesting. It really could. So let's go on to a comic that we're going to review. And the comic is a TNG comic called Terra Incognita. And this is issue number four. And so on previous episodes, we did review the first three issues, and the first issue dealt primarily with the Mir Barkley that is on the Enterprise D in the Prime Universe, but nobody knows that he's replaced the Prime Barkley. He's kind of locked him up as he impersonates the Barkley of this uh, timeline. And the second issue was more of a Deanna Troy-centric issue, and then the third one was more about Dr. Salar. Mm -hmm. This one focuses more on Wesley and Riker, but I would say it's mostly a Wesley story. So no, everybody, wait. Yeah, I know. I know. It's a Wesley story. It's okay. It's actually good. Okay. Don't freak out. Cause I know some of you don't like a Wesley story, but I think this one's actually pretty good. So anyway, this, <laughs> this Wesley story is when he is an ensign where he's wearing the red uniform. So uh, as if he's been in Starfleet Academy or getting ready to leave for the Academy. Yeah, it's um, mostly a Wesley story. The one thing I will notice since you brought up his uniform is they mess up his rank pips because at this time he should have the one single ensign pip, which we see on the cover of the comic, but they have the two vertical pips that he wears when he's a second year cadet at Starfleet Academy from uh, the episode most notably i'd say the first duty anyway that's my really nitpicky side coming out so could it be that he is at the academy and he just happens to be visiting the ship and that he changes from a cadet uniform to a regular starfleet uniform but he still has to show his cadet pips i don't think so i mean maybe but based on the time frame that They've said it's in shortly after the best of both worlds and the fleet's just being built up again. I would say this is during the season four part 
where he's still a part of the crew and hasn't left for the Academy yet. That would be just based on this story and the ones before it, where this takes place, I think. Again, I'm being really nitpicky, though. He just had a wardrobe malfunction that day. (laughs) Oh, a Star Trek nitpicky fan. Who would have imagined? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been written by uh, Scott Tipton and David Tipton, and the story art is by Angel Hernandez. So we start off on the bridge of the Enterprise, and Wesley is the captain. He's in charge, and he's barking out orders as some Cardassian ships appear to disrupt a rescue mission, and he ends up being late to rescue a crew of another starship. Well, we come to find out this is all taking place on a holodeck. This is a training program, and Commander Riker comes in, grinning from ear to ear. Oh, Wesley, yeah, you're not always going to win. Ha, 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 ha. Because, you know, Wesley (laughs) always saves the ship. Not this time. (laughs) But then they do embark on a real mission where they beam down to a planet where it's Riker, Wesley, and another officer, Gilson, and th- who was on the simulation with Wesley. And then, of course, Barkley, who's really, dun-dun-dun, the mere Barkley. And they beam down, and they meet these beings who welcome them to Fondor. I'm very fond of Fondor. <laughs> I had a feeling you'd say that. No, this is interesting. So, of course, like you said, the Barkley that's joined them is the one that we know to be the mirror universe Barkley. And kind of like in a previous issue, he has his sleeves rolled up. I think to kind of indicate that he's, you know, the rebellious mirror universe Barkley as opposed to the timid shy Barkley we know. But, you know, I I think it's basically just a requirement that people from the mirror universe show off some skin. I think that's he's like, how can I? Oh, there we go. I can roll up my sleeves. There we go. If only Lorca would have exposed more skin in his uniform, it would have been a dead giveaway on Discovery. (laughs) I know several fans of Discovery that would not have minded if Lorca showed more skin. (laughs) (laughs) That should be the name of this episode, but it won't be. Um, I also think it's interesting because with these uniforms, I think it would be hard to roll up the sleeves because the seems like the material is a little too thick to roll up as far up as Barkley has them. And even if he could get them up that far, I think they just fall right back down. That's kind of how I, I felt too, or or maybe it would be so tight around his arms so as to almost be injurious. Like, I, I don't feel like these uniforms would respond well to being rolled up. The only time we've seen rolled up sleeves on a uniform was O'Brien on Deep Space Nine in the first few seasons. And even that, like, those uniforms seemed more um, work coverall type uniforms than the TNG uniforms, which feel very formal and stiff. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they'd roll up that easily. Maybe this is a short sleeve uniform. We They just don't wear them very often. And he has one and he just rolls up the sleeves a little bit. Could be. <laughs> anyway, that's not what this issue is about. <laughs> so, But they beam down to this planet because uh, this race of beings wants to join the Federation. And Wesley ex- is explained to Gilson why this is an important uh, mission because of course every time a planet wants to join the federation that's an important mission but this is because as dan mentioned a little while ago shortly after the events of wolf 359 where they engage with the borg and these beings they they want protection and 
trade that comes from the Federation membership, and they're a society that emphasizes manufacturing and industry and can help rebuild the fleet. And then they take them into some hangar where there's these starships being constructed, multiple ones that look like Federation starships with the saucer, saucer section and such. And they even mention that it seems bigger in there than what this building or hangar is. And it reminded me of the TARDIS on Doctor Who. It's bigger on the inside than it looks like on the outside. Totally. Yeah, I was expecting, uh, you know, a, a, it's bigger on the inside reference kind of thing. You know, I, this is totally an aside. I just rewatched uh, the Christmas special, The Husbands of River Song, where yes. the 12th Doctor gets to pretend that he's seeing the inside of the TARDIS for the first time and does his whole, it's bigger on the inside. My God, my entire understanding of physics has been turned on its head. <laughs> anyway, totally an aside, great scene. And I was kind of expecting something like that here, but no such luck. <laughs> no, that's not what we get. Instead, what we get is a bunch of drones that start shooting at our crew members and they're on a platform. And as these things are shooting, Gilson falls off and she just disappears. They want to go down and help Shannon Gilson, but she, as she fell down, they said, oh, she probably felt, fell into a different uh, zone or, or dimension. She felt yeah. that there's some dimensional plane or something down there that she would have just disappeared. And even Wesley and Riker confirmed that when they saw her fall, she seemed to just vanish. Mm -hmm. So there's nowhere that they can go to find her to try to save her. But then we come to find out that there's another race of these beings on the planet that are the builders. So this is a society where certain beings are determined to be builders that would, of course, construct things and handle technology and others that are more of, I guess, leaders of the planet and others that are more spiritual beings of the planet. So it's a very stratified society. And at this point, I was thinking we were getting a story Kind of like the Cloudminders in the in season three TOS, where you have the Troglites who are the the miners, and then the Stratos dwellers who live in the city above. And I thought it's interesting. Like I thought this would be that kind of story where we learn there's this disparity and and they have to kind of mediate between these two groups. But the story actually took a different turn that I wasn't expecting from there. So kudos to them for not taking the story in the most uh, predictable direction. I'm with you. I thought, oh, this will be you know, your typical TNG Star Trek story or whatever, but it didn't quite play out that way. It wasn't as predictable. But if anything, now we have a scene where uh, Riker cannot communicate with the Enterprise. Their communicators are now not working. And the more leadership of the uh, of these beings is accusing the builders from as being the ones that must be blocking communications because it's the builders who control technology on the planet. So Riker has a side conversation with Wesley of like, Oh gosh, you know, what are we going to do? We, we don't have Troy. We don't have Picard to help us. It's all on us. And Wesley, you know, you were saying in that test simulation that it doesn't always feel real. So you may react differently if it were real. Well, Dude, it's real now. So let's see how we react to this. So Riker takes off with some of these beings to just kind of explore and figure out what's going on. While Wesley goes in a different direction, he follows the builders who the leaders of this planet are like, you 
don't talk to the builders. They're builders. They handle technology. They're not ones that you negotiate and discuss business with or politics or whatever. They're just builders. Well, Wesley follows them and he wants to talk to them. And they're not really that interested in talking to him, but the drones show up and he basically follows the drones because they seem to be escorting him in a certain direction. He gets on a platform that then hovers over the construction site and takes him to a different area where another drone starts talking to him. Yeah. And this is, like I said, where the story takes this turn that I really wasn't expecting. And it becomes, again, kind of like we were talking about a a group of society looking to be represented and have rights. But it turns out it's this artificial intelligence, this kind of emergent life form that's come out of these drones and the computer system that controls them, which is really cool. The other thing that I wanted to point it, point out that I thought was neat was the reason Wesley goes off on his own to try and question the builders is he's kind of nudged in that direction by Barclay, who says it's better to seek forgiveness than to ask permission. And it's kind of cool because he's bringing in the mirror universe mentality to kind of assist Wesley in what he's doing, which I thought was pretty interesting because it's almost like the fact that the mirror universe is not completely bad and completely without merit. Sometimes, and I I struggle to say this because the mirror universe is portrayed as totally evil and, and, you know, obviously it's not something we should strive towards, but sometimes the just a little bit more assertiveness that that character brings to this and kind of nudges Wesley in that direction was what was needed in this situation to really get to the bottom of what's going on. If Wesley had just followed orders and gone with Riker and, and not, I guess he didn't disobey orders, but he just didn't really communicate what he was doing and kind of didn't do things by the book. And if he had, they might never have found out that Ensign Gilson is alive as we discover later on. And that these, drones are an emergent AI that are seeking rights in this society, which is what the story becomes about. So I thought that was kind of interesting how the mirror universe mentality kind of influenced that. Yeah. And I like what you're saying about that uh, influence because it kind of reminds me of Lorca on discovery where it's not Mm -hmm. that he's all bad. I mean, there's certain things he does. that gives you little hints in some same way with, Barkley, he even goes on to say, you know, to consider an action that might ordinarily break the rules a little. Don't make Commander Riker angry. That certainly won't help, but keep your eyes open for possibilities. To which Wesley replies, Sometimes, Mr. Barkley, you're full of surprises. And Barkley says, More than ever. But <laughs> it's that whole exchange of not, Hey, Wesley, go break the rules and just don't listen to Riker. It's like, No, bend the rules a little. Don't make Riker angry. Just, you know, just a little rule breaking, not, not anything big. It's not like this terroristic, you know, go all out and break every rule and and do it your way, Wesley. Forget about Riker. He doesn't deserve to listen to you anyway, or whatever. You're right. The probes are now self-aware. And this is really just in the last two pages of the comic. Yeah. This really develops fast. (laughs) Yeah. And then we find that Shannon Gilson is alive that the drones used this as an opportunity. They were shooting at them to get Starfleet's attention and get them away from this race of beings so that they could talk to them and say, look, 
they won't listen to us and they won't like, we need the Federation's help to help mediate this relationship that we have with these beings. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a really interesting story. And the fact that it takes this turn was really surprising. And the, just one other thing I want to say about Barkley too, is you mentioned, he says, you know, look for your opportunity and take it. Don't make Riker mad, but just, you know, see your opportunity and, and, see what you can find out. It's really cool that he's from the mirror universe, but he's operating in within the rules of our universe. So in our universe, seeing an opportunity and taking it means pursuing an investigation that's maybe not authorized, but that will yield good results in the mirror universe. Seeing an opportunity and taking it means killing Tasha Yar and taking her place as security chief, which was kind of flashing through my mind when Barkley said that you see your opportunity and you take it. I'm like, Oh, like you did. That's uh that's kind of dark. <laughs> yeah. He's actually a good mentor to be to Wesley because as a result yeah. of this mission, everything worked in the right direction in a positive direction. I have a feeling things are going to turn in the next, maybe not the next issue, but certainly in issue six for Barkley and that whole storyline. But what's really interesting to me is that hasn't been the main thrust of this series. And I know I've said this in the previous two issues as well, but you know, it's just kind of this thing that's hanging around in the background and not really front and center yet. So this this series has really surprised me on a number of levels in in pleasant ways, I think. Yeah, because the previous issue was Dr. Salar, and we haven't had that many stories that are just Salar-centric. And we ha even got a backstory with her, and the one before that was Troy. But yeah, Barkley is kind of like the backstory to the standalone stories. And I'm sure by the time we hit this last issue, then we're going to see where there's a connection maybe between all of these and how that Barkley is the thread that ties the whole story together. But yeah, really, each issue is, for the most part, a standalone story, and I've really enjoyed them. So I would definitely give this one a thumbs up. I, I quite enjoyed this comic. Yeah, this gets a hearty recommend for me as well. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I kind of wasn't sure where it was going to start with, but by the end I was on board and I really like this, the, the arc that Wesley's character takes in this story. Absolutely. And the artwork, uh, is really great. I love that too. Um, likeness of the characters are there and it's just, I just love this, the beings on this planet and how, even though they all look the same, they're slightly different between the mm -hmm. builders and, and the other types. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Pip issues aside, I really like the artwork as well. Uh, really great capturing of the characters' likenesses. And especially I noticed with Barkley, you know, it looks like Barkley, but he's got that harder edge in his eyes that really comes through. So good stuff here. And who doesn't love a cover where Riker has his leg propped up? Oh, I mean, come on. That's, you know, that's beautiful. They need a whole story just based on that. <laughs> I, I, they'll call it Riker who has a leg up on things. Ah, there you go. I'm waiting for the, you know, get a leg up on your competition puns or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Why do I do puns? Maybe because I'm a dad. It's just sad. <laughs> it's just really sad. You know what? We need to go on to the feature because it's now a time to kill this whole news segment. I agree. Let's do it. Okay. So now that we're in the feature, 
it is A Time to Kill. That's the name of the novel that we're reviewing, and it's by David Mack, as we mentioned earlier. It's the seventh book in the Time 2 series, and there are nine books. So we are getting closer to the end. We've been doing one a month, so by the end of the year, we should hit the last one. So seventh novel by David... Well, the seventh novel is written by David Mack, and then he also did the eighth novel. So all these novels so far have been kind of parts one, part two, then parts one, part two. Now this is a part one, and then the eighth novel will be the part two to the story. So this is a political thriller, and this is also the first full-length Star Trek novel that David Mack ever wrote. Prior to this, he did the Starfleet Corps of Engineers stories and short stories and different anthologies, but this is now his first standalone full-length novel, and it is fast Pace. Let me tell you, there are things just boom, boom, boom happening left and right. The chapters are very short, so you feel like you're really flying through this book. With that, and also being a political thriller, really means that things are happening fast. So Dan, did you like the way this book moved? I did, actually. It's It really, like you said, makes the book move fast. I blew through this book in two days. Uh, which, you know, I usually like to take my time a bit and stretch it out to a week kind of thing. But I found myself in a lot of situations not being able to put the book down. And a lot of that has to do with, well, okay, I'll read one more chapter. Let's see. Flip, flip. Oh, it's two pages. Okay, I'll read that. And then that chapter is over and I may as well read another one. This one's only a page and a half. And then, well, the next one's only six pages. I'll just read that. You know, so it really, like, I found myself just continually getting through this book and added to the fact that the act, like, it's very action-packed. This book is very plot-driven. There's some great character moments as well, for sure. But I would say more so than most of the books we've read recently, this is really driven by plot. So it, the tension ratchets up fast and a lot of stuff happens, but it happens very quickly. So I enjoyed it. I, I found it a really great read. And it's almost like watching a Jack Ryan movie or something like that, where, you know, you get one scene that has an establishing shot of, you know, the Kremlin. So, you know, you're in Russia and then it zooms in and you have this fast scene between two characters and then it zooms out to somewhere else. And this was the same thing. Like I imagined like establishing shots of the great hall on Kronos and then a quick scene between Worf and Martok and then earth Palais de la Concorde, the office of the president and the president talks with his aide. And then it zooms to the enterprise enterprise. Oh, 800 hours. Blah, and it blah, types. Blah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and I just, I really dug it. Like I, I was really into it. You know, I, I want I want a series like this. I, I want a television series that just zips all over the alpha and beta quadrants and has this big political story or something like that. But I was really enjoying this. I could tell you were because you started reading the book before I did and you were already saying like, oh, it just moves so fast and the chapters are really short and it's one thing after another. And so I was already going in knowing what I was going to get. And you're right. I mean, it just... It was just hitting one thing after another and then coming back to something and going somewhere else differently or whatever. It wasn't anything that was confusing. I know we've talked a lot about uh, recently the Deep Space Nine books, the Millennium books, and they are very dense with all kinds of 
things going on, but they're not jumping to all the different places like this book. But I would say Millennium is a little harder to get your mind around and keep things straight. This didn't feel that way. Even though it's moving fast in different locations and different scenes, it flowed really well to the point that I did not get lost and go, wait, who's this again? Or wait, what's going on? I mean, I never had to go back and double check anything. Yeah. I mean, a lot happens in this book, but it's all very straightforward. Like it's, it, it is like watching a movie like The Sum of All Fears or The Hunt for Red October or something like that. Like it's, it's a very, I don't want to say simple, but it's a very, you know, straightforward plot. A leads to B leads to C. This happens, which leads to this happening, which leads to this happening. You know, there's no big twists or surprises that you didn't see coming kind of thing. It just, it really zips along and carries you along with it at breakneck speed. And it's the length of most Star Trek novels. I think, if I remember correctly, I think there were 69 chapters, which yeah. is a lot more than what you usually get. But the length of the novel is about the same length as most Star Trek novels. So it's not any longer. It's just the chapters are shorter. And there's, I think, maybe about three chapters or so that kind of focus on these agents that are kind of watching things that are going on and there's not a whole lot of an explanation behind them but you caught something from this so i guess minor spoilers for later novels that come up so the section 31 novels featuring um julian Bashir and serena douglas that we get later on mostly by david mack but one thing I noticed was this character of Lahan, who you know is a high-ranking member of Section 31. And I had no idea that she shows up this early in the novel verse. So I'm assuming, because this novel is by David Mack, that she's an invention of David Mack's that he brings back in later novels. And I, I'd, I'd love to ask him about this character and how she came about, because I... I find her really fascinating. I guess I use that word ironically because she's a Vulcan, but she's, you know, a member of section 31 and maybe doesn't have the same ethical foundation, I guess, that other Vulcans we've met seem to have. So, you know, really cool that she shows up this early. I was not expecting to see her there. I did not even put the two together until you said that uh, I was like, wow. Yeah. I didn't even realize that she was a character that shows up later in section 31. I remember her character, but the name just didn't like jump out to me and go, wait, I know who this is. So mm -hmm. I love that connection. I mean, that just shows that the continuity of these books still plays after all these years. Cause this book came out what, 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, something like that? Yeah, something like that. And Lahan is most recently in Section 31 Control, which, you know, was one of the most recent Star Trek novels released. Yes, it was. And this book I just looked up came out in July of 2004. So yeah, about, you know, close to 15 years ago. Wow. So <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I hope you get a chance to ask David Mack that question about this character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll see if we can manage that somehow. Mm -hmm. He's been on the show before. Maybe he'll show up again someday. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, he's not just sitting in the green room like Dayton Ward is. You okay over there, Dayton? Dayton's okay. But, uh, but you know, he does come around every once in a while, so... Well, I do hope he comes around sometime soon, because the next thing I want to talk about is some secret plans. 
this novel takes place on this planet called Tezwa, and the prime minister of Tezwa is Kachan, and he is secretly listening to a conversation over, I guess, subspace, whatever, between his deputy prime minister, Bylock, who is talking secretly with the Federation chief of staff, Cole Ezernal. <laughs> Boy, I'm glad I got through all that. Um, I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ezernal is a Zakdorn, if you remember what those uh, beings are like from TNG. And, of course, Bylog is on Tezwa, so, like, Kinchon. And, anyway, they are making plans that involve the Klingons, and Bylog plans to overthrow Kinchon while wanting to join then the Federation. But Kinjon has other plans to start a war with the Klingons by declaring sovereignty over Kevol, a planet with a Klingon colony. That's where this whole political, you know, thriller sorely starting things. So, I, you know, I was already finding this very interesting because even though these were characters I was not familiar with and were just being introduced to, the fact that one is overhearing these two others, I was curious as to why the prime minister or the deputy prime minister of this planet is communicating secretly with the chief of staff. I already knew that there must be something that they're up to no good with. And especially Kinshaw is either on the good side of things or the bad side of things. Yeah, you kind of piece together from what they're saying that it they they seem to think that this Kinshaw guy is a little out of control, a little bit of a loose cannon and might be doing something bad. So, you know, but again, is that just from their perspective or what's going on exactly? And Cole Azernal, we briefly got introduced to him at the end of the previous duology where he was talking about using the the planet that Kyle Riker was on to create a race, uh, create warriors i guess for the federation so we kind of already know that this guy's bad news like he's up to no good kind of thing um but man it just it's it's disheartening to know that someone near the top of the federation is so involved in these really shady things that are going on and and we learn later on in the book exactly what's going on here and we don't quite know that yet but you know just the fact that he was involved in this previous big issue. And then obviously there's something else going on here. It makes you wonder how many skeletons are in the closets of, of these high up Federation officials. And you know, what, what happened to the Federation being a force for good and, and not doing this sort of thing. That's the thing that really struck a chord with me because I have read books that take place after a time two, and there's been hints in those books as to what happens in these books. So for example, in the articles of the Federation and some other like post nemesis books, there have been things that have been discussed that I've never read about that I now see are being developed in this series. And I knew they were in this series, but I never read. And one of those things involves the Federation president, Min Zeif. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not that familiar with Min Zeif outside of really the articles of the Federation and, like I said, some other books, but this is the part I've been really interested to get to because I know that 
spoilers i'm gonna say right now <laughs> just in case yeah let's let's launch into spoilers this book is so plot heavy that like things happen fast so it's a good idea we'll we'll say spoilers now yeah he has placed some prototype weapons they're called nadian pulse cannons and they're placed on tezwa for use really as defense against the Borg and possibly to be even used uh, in the Dominion War. But of course, the Dominion War is over at this point. Zeif's concern is that the Klingons will discover these weapons and discover that they were secretly placed there, which is against the Kinemur Accords. So an attack on the Klingons led by Kinshan would reveal the weapons when used and could cause a war between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. Now, Captain Picard discovers the weapons. Now, he doesn't initially know how those weapons came about, but with Riker, they send six strike teams from the Enterprise down to the plant to destroy these weapons. Okay, so I just gave you a lot right there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to kind of put that as the framing of what we want to discuss. So my first thing I want to say is about uh, Min Zeif, the president. This is the part I've been waiting for because I knew he was involved in doing something corrupt or something wrong that got him out of office. That's what I've discovered in the other books. And so we're building into that. And of course, he doesn't want to get these weapons exposed to the Klingons because they will get really upset that these weapons exist and they knew nothing about them. And this could cause the war between the two of them. Yeah. So basically what they do is they order the enterprise to Tezwa with a Klingon fleet. And they, (laughs) it's kind of funny because they act as though they know exactly how to manipulate things, you know, to, to get them to work out and, Cole Azernal says, you know, we'll offer Martok these colonies, these or these planets that he's been after in exchange. And they do that in order to get Martok to agree to send ships under the command of Picard along with the Enterprise. And Martok basically is like, how dare he try and bribe me like some sort of honorless Patak and blah, blah, blah. And basically it's Ambassador Worf who's like, no, no, Martok, you know, we, you should do this because blah, blah, blah. And they calm him down and, you know, Picard's a man of honor. It'll be fine and all that kind of stuff. So the first thing, yeah, I want to say is it's funny that they think they have this, you know, everything figured out, but they're, they're really bungling everything in my mind. And they're under the belief, they know these weapons are on this planet, of course, and they're under the belief, thanks to, uh, what the um, what Minister Bylock has told them, they're under the belief that Kinshan will not use them. He will not fire on the Klingon ships. And of course, Kinshan has intercepted this communication, like you said, and knows that they believe that and kind of lull them into sending the Klingon fleet with the Enterprise and opens up on them and destroys the Klingon ships and heavily damages the enterprise and and it's just you know thousands of casualties and this huge interstellar incident now and the president orders picard to get down to that planet somehow and destroy those six um prototype weapons and of course like you said the president and his aide know that they were supplied by the federation against the law But Picard doesn't know that and thinks that this is just a mission to get them out of play so that they won't threaten more Klingon ships or more Federation ships that go there kind of thing. So there's, you know, 
you know, this tangled web that they've weaved and basically it's them trying to dig themselves out of this hole and using Picard and his crew as pawns in order to do that. And Picard also realizes that the, I'm going to call them Tezwanians. I don't think they're ever referred to that way. I'm just going to call them the Tezwanians. Uh, They're not at that point in their development to create weapons this sophisticated. So Picard Mm -hmm. knows that there's been some type of outside influence or something. And as they start discovering more and more about these weapons, they start to see that it is of Federation design. They still don't know how that came about, but somehow they did get these schematics from the Federation to either build these themselves or someone else build them for them. But I didn't put uh, this in our list of things to talk about, but there was all the strike teams and each of the six strike teams had their own chapters. And so there was all these six different adventures going on. And there was just so much that I just didn't want to go too far into it. But for example, Riker leads a team. Uh, and then we have Jordy leading a team and Data's leading a team. I can't even remember who was all leading teams. There was one group that wasn't even one of our major crew members that was being led by. Yeah, Jim Pert was leading one of the teams. He's kind of a a security officer. I don't know if maybe this might be the first appearance of him as well, but he's one that's shown up again over the years in different novels. And Vale, and she led a team. Vale led a team and Torque also led a team, I that's believe. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So which were all in really different environments. Like mm-hmm. different like you know, one's in in this in a desert type area, one's in a like forest one's more in a swampy area one's in a snow area they're all like i thought i was watching star wars movies because every planet has a different type <laughs> of environment yeah and well that's what i love about this novel too is this is a fully realized planet you know tezwa isn't a desert world it's a planet like earth that has all these different environments that they almost contend with and each team kind of has a different challenge like Jordy's team has to scale this huge cliff face in order to get to their weapon and Riker and his team have to go through this bog uh, and, you know, Riker gets stung by an insect and is pretty badly injured by the time the novel's finished. And all of this stuff that all these teams have to face is really interesting. I think was it Vale's team, I think was at the bottom of the ocean underwater. Oh, yeah, like, that's right. That one was interesting. And there was a submarine down there too. Yeah, they, the hatch they were supposed to get in through, there's a submarine sitting at the hatch, so they have to find a different way in, and like all these different challenges. And like I said, it's there's a lot of plot in this novel, not a lot of character development. So it's it's very driven by what's happening in the book. So there's a lot happening here. And every time they would go to one of these areas where the, uh, the cannons are, every crew that got to the place where they got into the facility it seemed that there was always a description of and then they went down the narrow stairway (laughs) you know i kept noticing the narrow stairway the narrow stairway so there was a lot of parallels between the stories and some were more easily uh successful in what they were doing than some of the others some had other challenges involved but they were all eventually ended up being successful and doing this without trying to lose the lives of any of the Tenzwanians that were in these facilities. In a lot of cases, putting their own lives well ahead of, of any of the enemy 
you know, as you would say <laughs> in this case, and making sure that there's no casualties, like you said, to the Tezwanians. But, you know, the Enterprise teams do lose a number of people and it's at great personal cost that they accomplish this mission. So, you know, really showing that the crew of the Enterprise is the best of the best and they'll do what's asked of them, even if it's, you know, something like this. <laughs> well, and speaking of the crew of the Enterprise, uh, there's one member that we haven't seen really in these books because he's not a member of the crew anymore. And that's Worf. He's now an ambassador as the events of deep space nine ended. And he's on Kronos as this ambassador to the Federation. And now Worf has a fairly sizable role in this book, which to me is, Oh, this is great. Now we're working Worf into the story, which eventually will lead to the events of Nemesis when people are like, wait, Worf was an ambassador. Now he's a security officer on the Enterprise. What's going on? I have a feeling we're going to find out in these stories. I really thought with the with what happens in this story that like he would have to resign the ambassadorship in disgrace because of some of the stuff he does, which really surprised me. You know, it's it's one of those things that like it, I flashed back to all good things where uh, where Picard as an old man is asking Worf for a favor and he appeals to Worf's honor and and Worf yells, you always do that. Just get what you want from me. And Picard says, because it always works, Worf. And I, I like to think now that like Picard is remembering back to this, that like Worf will do what he asks of him and Worf really does make a lot of compromises, I think, to his position as ambassador and the role that he's been entrusted with in order to do this mission for Picard, which is basically to steal the prefix codes to Klingon warships from his brother, Chancellor Martok, you know, his 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 family. I'm kind of surprised how far Worf went in this mission. It really, it was, it was a big surprise to me. Well, in some ways it shows that he is more Federation than Klingon maybe, but he also refers to Picard as being like a father figure to him. You know, I think we're starting to find that maybe his loyalty is a little more so to the Federation side of things than the Klingon side of things. So it's that balance that he's always like trying to figure out and, and, fight for himself as you know he's Klingon but he's also Federation but you're right there's these Klingon ships that are heading towards Tenzwa and you know Picard is trying to get rid of these cannons and prevent a war and hopefully resolve this before the ships arrive but they want to disable these ships and they know that there's this these codes that Riker knows about when he served on the Klingon ship in season two on the episode a matter of honor. A matter of honor. See, I knew you'd know that. <laughs> and uh, so how could they get the codes? And Picard's like, hmm, I know someone on Kronos who could help us. And of course, Worf is like, I can help you. And so these ships are on their way and Worf's trying to get the codes. And by the way, Alexander is one of those ships. We never see Alexander or hear from him, but we're told that Worf's son is on one of those ships. And uh, so he goes in the Federation embassy on Kronos and then he eventually ends up in the great hall to get the codes from Martok. He's not successful with that, but he has a Klingon friend who's an undercover agent that is willing to help him that has some connection with section 31. Hmm. And then 
that leads Worf to Counselor Kopak, and Worf basically threatens him to hand over the codes, or he's gonna, you know, he's threatened his life, you know, I will kill you if you don't give me the codes. It wasn't quite like that, but, you know, I'm summarizing. <laughs> so we do get the codes. <laughs> yeah, this counselor basically has, he has a sordid past, and you know, there's a lot of dark stuff from his past and Worf kind of gets all of the information on him and holds it over him and says, I will reveal this all and you will be dishonored and disgraced unless you give me these codes. Uh, and if you do, I won't, I won't, you know, out you in that, this kind of thing. And of course the counselor believes that Worf is just as corrupt as he is. And is like, you'll tell people anyway. And he says, no, I give you my word as a man of honor. I won't do that. So, you know, finally convinces him to give him his codes. And at this point, Worf is still tempted to turn over this information because this counselor is such a horrible person and does not deserve to be on the high council. But Worf, He's a man of honor and he gave his word and does not do it. Yeah, but weren't you hoping he would say something? I was of two minds. I I honestly was like, oh, I don't know. Like, what would I do in that situation? You know, if you give your word, but if you give your word to someone who's so honorless, does he deserve your word? But if you break your word, aren't you just as bad as he is? Like, it's just, oh man, it was a good dilemma. One of the nice little pieces of character work that got worked in amongst all the really heavy plot stuff. So it was interesting. I, I was, I honestly didn't know where Worf would go there. I, I didn't think he would give up that information because he really is a man of honor, but yeah, I was maybe hoping he would a little bit. You want to see bad people like that fall, right? You want to see them get their comeuppance. And I kind of feel like he will someday anyway, because he's just so brazen and stuff but alas Worf isn't the one to out him no i mean i i was like you i was like "Ooh, is he or isn't he going to i was hoping he would in a way you know but Mm -hmm. i don't know but i'm still very curious to see where this leads to nemesis (laughs) like how Worf gets on the enterprise so i hope i'm not disappointed in that i'm sure that's going to be revealed if it's not then i will be disappointed but i'm sure that's coming up in a future book I would assume so. I mean, that's one of the big questions that people have. That said, we haven't seen Wesley again yet. And I'm wondering how the heck, you know, where, where, why is Wesley at the wedding in Nemesis in a Starfleet uniform? You know, what happens there? I don't know. Yeah, because we had Wesley in the first two books in the A Time 2 series, and we haven't seen or even heard anything about Wesley really since then, except Beverly missing Wesley. Maybe that will come up later too. Somehow yeah, maybe. maybe this arc will circle around back to that. I'm kind of, I'm really glad that in doing these books for the podcast, I haven't read them before because I, I honestly, I, with the exception of stuff that I've gleaned from le- reading later novels, like you said, uh, and, and that there's a big, there's a Tezwa issue and Min Zeif has something to do with it. I actually haven't even read articles of the Federation. So I've just read other books that have referred back to that. Oh, I just assume you did. Yeah. Well, including like the recent section 31 control and all this, you know, the fallout from this. So I, I have the broad strokes of that whole thing, but as far as the characters go and what happens to all of them, I have no idea. Like I 
honestly do not know what's going to happen. And I actually almost kind of also envy the listeners who are listening to this and have read the books and know what's going to happen, because I think that's funny that you guys are probably all going like, Ooh, I know what's going to happen. And, you know, Bruce and I are just in the dark over here. We are in the dark yet. If I had read these books when they came out and I was listening to the show, I'd be like, I think I remember what happens. I can't remember exactly. It's been so long. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Let's go on to towards the end here of the book. So Kinshawn is trying to assassinate Bylock and his party. And it's almost like, you know, Democrats and Republicans trying to kill each other, <laughs> which may not be a bad idea. Anyway. <laughs> But anyway, the, <laughs> anyway, the assassination fails, and then Bylock eventually takes over the duties of Prime Minister of Tezwa as the new Prime Minister, and then Kinshan runs off with his group for now, and he tries to organize his own resistance movement, which is, of course, leading to where the next book is going to go. So Zeif and Ezenrol continue to cover up for the weapons and look to frame the Tholians because they're like, well, we don't want the Klingons to find out it was us. Da, da, da. Maybe we can make it look like it was the Tholians that put the cannons there, which I thought that was an interesting uh, play in this. And I hope that kind of plays out more in the next book. We'll see. And then of course, you know, as we mentioned before, the enterprise teams were successful in destroying the weapons. So that's kind of leaning towards the end of this book. That's going to go into play in the story of the next book. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting threads that are left here. I, you know, I, I continue to be amazed at the timeliness of this book a little bit with, you know, what certainly looks to be, pretty big presidential cover-ups and stuff happening behind the scenes that people don't know about that, you know, possibly might get released or not and that kind of thing. It's just like there were several moments reading this book that I, you know, I'd read this book and then I'd listen to a bit of the news and I'd just kind of shake my head and go, oh man, like this just all feels very familiar. That aside, I do like the uh, the cliffhanger elements. So like you said, we've got Kinshan, who's probably going to be leading attacks against the government now. And the other big cliffhanger, of course, is that Riker's team is entirely killed, except for Riker, who now seems to have been captured by forces loyal to Kinshan as well. And we don't know exactly what's happened to him. Deanna Troy knows that he's alive but they don't know where he is or where he's being held or what exactly has happened there. But the Enterprise team, like you said, was successful in destroying the weapons. So it looks like this new government under a Prime Minister Bylock, which also I have to say, I really enjoyed the scene where they burst into the, the chambers or whatever to kind of take control and they see that like the Enterprise is hailing them. And Bylock is like, quick, you two, grab those flags, stand behind me. And they're like, stand behind him. And he's like, okay, answer the hail. It's like, we're the new government of the planet. We, you know, we agree to anything, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like such a interesting moment. Like, you know, they grabbed the flags and stood behind him and looked all official. And, but it's just the spur of the moment thing where they just kind of seized control right in that moment. I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, that is. And I was really happy that they seized control. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's 
like, okay, the book ended the way I want to. The good guys are now in control of the planet, but we know this may be short-lived because Kinshan is sneaking up behind them at any moment. So mm-hmm. that's what we're going to get in the next book, which, by the way, we're going to review in uh, in about a month. And that next book is called A Time to Heal by David Mack. So, uh, yeah, we're continuing on with the series. But that's not the last thing we want to talk about this book. There's a tragedy that occurs with our good friend Data. And Dan, this this really was a moving moment, wasn't it? Yeah, this was right at the end of the novel. And the previous books have touched on this a little bit. But in the first in the, in the second novel of the A Time 2 series, I should say, Data's emotion chip is removed by Admiral Nakamura. And it's it's really led to this character change for Data, which is really, I don't know, heartbreaking, I guess is probably the right word. So like we said, Riker and his team, they fail to report in and are missing. And we know that everyone's been killed except Riker. He's been captured. And Troy is obviously very upset. And Data attempts to comfort her. And this, I'm going to read directly from the book here, this part, as he's kind of, you know, Troy is crying on his chest and Data puts his arm around her. And this is from the book. He tried to remember sorrow. It was a vague memory, dim and imprecise. His positronic mind could see its mathematical values with perfect clarity, but could do nothing with them. Awkwardly bereft of feelings, unsure of what to do or say, he stood silently, closed his eyes, and held his weeping friend. And it's just, like, this actually almost really got to me. It seems like Data's loss of emotions now is even more tragic than his initial lack of them. It seems like when he didn't have the emotionship before, he didn't really know what he was missing and was just kind of moving through life and, and learning and growing and that sort of thing. But now that he's had a taste of that and had that kind of ripped away from him, he has this vague memory of having emotions but doesn't have them to even like reflect on that memory with and to remember fondly or anything like that. He's just, you know, even more so than he was before he got the emotion chip. He's just a puppet, like an automaton with no feelings at all. And I know that's not entirely the case, but I just, it feels like that a little bit. And it's really sad because Data's awesome and, and, uh, he can't even feel bad that he doesn't have emotions, <laughs> you know, like it's just, Oh, it's awful. But it's funny because you feel bad for him, but yet he has no feelings. So in a lot of ways, you shouldn't feel bad because he doesn't I feel know. anything. <laughs> I feel like that guy at the end of the Ikea commercial needs to walk up. It's like, why are you feeling sorry for the android? It's because you're crazy. He has no feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's a very odd situation because the way he comforts Troy is this nice moment but it's like he's doing it because of feelings but he has no feelings so it's just a memory of how to act and react in that situation so it's almost just going through the motions yeah 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 going through the motions it's kind of cold but yet it's sweet but then you know it's Mm -hmm. not sweet because he doesn't really know yeah you're right i you're right he's like a puppet you know he's just doing what he's programmed to do. But then again, maybe even though he doesn't have feelings, 
and he's reacting like he has feelings, maybe there's a sense that there's a type of feeling. I, I, I don't know. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, if you react to something in a way that you have feelings, maybe you are experiencing some kind of feelings. Mm -hmm. And I, and I honestly think that's the case with data. Like before he got the emotion chip, there's actually a little bit, I think it's in the cold equations trilogy of books where David Mack writes something like, uh, data didn't have the emotion chip, but the emotion chip just gave him human emotions. He had emotions before they were Android emotions. They were developing. They were, you can't watch the next generation and, think that data has absolutely no emotions whatsoever he has something that's driving his childlike curiosity and, and wonder about the world and stuff and i think the the thing that i find really tragic is you know that almost seems to be missing a bit now because he had that going on before then he was given the emotion chip and this whole new world was opened up to him and now it's like somebody's come along and handicapped him and and taken it away from him and it's more tragic than when he just didn't have it before he was still growing and evolving but this now feels like a huge step back for him and like somebody's come along and you know taken his legs out from under him and just hobbled him you know and it just that makes me really sad <laughs> so in star trek nemesis i hadn't thought about this but i, I don't recall i mean he doesn't have his emotion chip activated at the end does he i don't think so i i don't know if they outright say it but if you watch nemesis it's like he doesn't have his emotion chip and i'm wondering if that's why they've made this decision in these books because it just never comes up he and he doesn't seem to have emotions yeah that's why nemesis. i'm getting the sense that maybe it's like you just said it's leading up to that in the fact that he may not have emotions from the emotion ship, but he is experiencing Android emotions that have grown and been learned and experienced over time that when he makes his sacrifice with Picard, it's not the emotion ship. It's the Android emotions that have developed over time. Yeah. And, and I think that I really, yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Now I know why Amy Nelson loves nemesis. I mean, I don't love Nemesis. I think that movie has a ton of problems, but there are good moments in Nemesis. You know, I have friends that have tons of problems and I still love them. <laughs> well, your friend's not a movie made by a director that I didn't like. And anyway, strike. Anyway, Never mind. Don't worry about that. That's our final <laughs> thoughts on Nemesis. So, Dan, what are your final th what are your final thoughts on A Time to Kill? I have to say I really enjoyed this novel. I I generally like a little bit more character development and, and character study in the novels I read. But every once in a while, something like this that's just a really fast-paced thriller that just really moves and brings you along for the ride is a lot of fun. And David Mack can write an action scene. Like, crazy great action in this book. And... I just really, really, really enjoy it. Um, I do also have to say one of the hanging threads for the next book too is they downloaded all the files from one of the guns as well. So they, ha they have all these encrypted files that probably has this really damning evidence against Min Zeif and Cole Azernal 
and all of that. So I'm curious to see what role that plays in stuff going forward, because that's a very big Chekhov's gun that's been placed in the hands of our heroes now. So mostly what I like this book for is the fast paced action. That was a lot of fun, but also the setup for what's to come. There are a lot of pieces at play here and I love how everything's been maneuvered in place to really give us what I think is probably going to be a great payoff judging by the ripple effects it's had through Star Trek novels for years to come afterwards. So I'd have to give this one four out of five incriminating isolinear rods that totally destroy members of the Klingon High Council if they were to ever get out. (laughs) Well, that's a good rating right there. (laughs) You know, the whole thing you just said about character development, and we don't get a lot of that in there, that's one thing... I really do enjoy about novels when there's a lot of character or character development, but you're right. There's so much plot and it's moving so fast. That was very enjoyable. And my thought is if you had worked in maybe more character development into it, it probably would have been even a better novel. Maybe not. I don't know. Cause it may have slowed the pace down and maybe it wouldn't have worked as well as a story. I'm not sure. I have heard that the next book takes a little bit of a different direction on things. So maybe we get more character development in that. And so this boom, boom, boom action and scene moving is just building up to what we're going to get, which maybe slows down more, goes in a little deeper, goes deeper into the characters. Maybe I'm, I don't know. So, uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed the book. I think it's a great first effort for a first full-length Star Trek novel uh, that David Mack did here. So I say that I am going to give this book seven out of nine A Time to Series books. Nice. That that lines up really well. It does, doesn't it? And the more books we get in, the higher the rating, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or not. We shall see. Well, it sounds like uh, it's a winner, so uh, we'll talk about A Time to Heal coming up here in a few episodes, so I'm looking forward to that. So one of the funny things about this novel that I I found, and it was unintentional, was I was Googling the book cover for it to download to to put on my website, because I'm going to be reviewing it there as well, and I typed into Google... A Time to Kill David Mack. And I did not mean that the way it was written, but I had typed it out and hit enter before it really registered. And now I'm worried I'm on some sort of government list and that the author David Mack has been contacted to watch out for this guy who's Googling that it's time to kill David Mack. And I did not mean that in any way whatsoever. (laughs) You know, he should have thought twice about naming the book A Time to Kill. (laughs) Than David Mack. <laughs> yeah, it was it was an unfortunate, you know, I didn't put the buy in there because you don't, you know, I was just a time to kill David Mack. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope uh, no one takes that literally and I hope you don't get arrested for attempting to kill or research killing David Mack. He probably would come on and say, well, you're not the first person that's threatened to kill him. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I almost just heard that in his voice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been fun talking about killing David Mack today, but it isn't the only thing we've been discussing here on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek.fm. Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. 
However, one thing Everyone's I do Everyone's la- gonna sing the song. Everyone join me. Life Force. No, I will not join you. I'm sorry. Okay, however. Meta treks. Speaking of character, I always found it interesting how many ways Q manifests himself, the characters that he takes on. We see him as a Starfleet commander, a Bajoran waiter. We see him as an alien captain. Uh, this this is just a, a cosplayer. That's <laughs> a man of many faces. Who knew Q was such a theater geek? The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. I felt like I was in a Vegas casino and the bling, 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 like it was the jackpot. And I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? How is she affecting the replicators and that's throwing food out? I've never seen a replicator throw food out. Melodic tricks. Well, it was definitely about a lower budget. There was no question that we could not afford Jerry Goldsmith. And later, by the time we got to do Star Trek VI, we couldn't afford Jamie Horner. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps. And you can also stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. And if you'd like to help us keep all these shows coming to you each and every week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm. And you'll get all the details there, including our perks, which include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. And you know what? These are all available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. We're even recording special bonus episodes of literary treks, short ones, kind of like short treks of literary treks in the patron zone. So check those out. So it does require a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. So we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope that you'll join the team. Again, you will find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, the best of the shows on Trek FM, and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the current reading section that shows you what's coming up on future shows. Plus, there's great conversations happening about the books and comics we're reviewing here on Literary Trek. So just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea Matala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support 
of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. So Dan, when you are not running a cannonball run to destroy other planets with your cannonballs, where can people find you in your balls? <laughs> well, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I make videos talking about Star Trek. Don't really have any balls that come into that, though, so that's good. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook.com slash Productions, and also on the Babel Conference on Facebook talking about Star Trek, but actually mostly just lurking and reading what you all have to say about our shows here on Trek FM. Now, Bruce, when you're not utilizing state-of-the-art top-secret Section 31 tech to bug Chancellor Martok's office and figure out those secret Klingon codes, where can we find you? Well, you can find me lurking in other places, like on Twitter. I'm at Admiral underscore Rex. And I have some Section 31 secrets I could tell you, but you'll have to DM me to find those out. And you can find me here on the network doing Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala, where we do a live show on YouTube and gets released later as a podcast when a new episode of Discovery or Short Treks comes out. So those are always fun. You can interact with us there. And you can also find me recently on a couple of episodes of Warp 5, where I made a guest appearance talking about rewriting These Are the Voyages, and I don't know if we did a good job or not, so <laughs> just check that out. But you can also find me in the Babel Conference, lurking around, being a Section 31 agent, reading all of your comments, and occasionally I will come out of the shadows and make a comment to those comments. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.